in a world devoid of originality. In a time before the Fast and the Furious, Pixar, and the MCU. Five franchises lay siege to the cinema, and only one thing stands in their way. A podcast. This summer. Go back to that summer. It's the Back to the Movies sequel spectacular. Everybody. Welcome to a very, very special episode of Back to the Movies. I am your host, Ben, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Matt McGee. Ben, I have never heard you so excited in my life. I'm I'm thrilled. I'm so excited <laughs> because we have a batshit crazy episode that we're trying to put on right now, and it feels like a momentous occasion. I don't know. We've got three guests with us today, so let's just get to introducing them right off the bat. We have a lot of movies to cover, and we decided it would be better if we didn't do that all, just the two of us. So, in no particular order, let me introduce you to John Curtin. Hello. Andy Gagnon. How's it going, everybody? And Davide DiCogno Hagen. Did I say that right? Yeah. Hey, hey, hey. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. I just realized that as I was looking at your name that I don't know if I've ever said your last name out loud before. (laughs) It doesn't get said out loud. It's a purely reading kind of name. (laughs) How's everyone doing? I'm I'm doing, yeah I'm doing great I'm doing great. It's a little crazy juggling four other people to talk to, but we're gonna make it work. Oh yeah, it'll be super smooth. So Ben, tell us what's the goal of this episode? All, we're watching five, maybe even six movies. What are we doing here, man? Is this gonna just be crazy? Like, is it unnecessary? Just like a sequel? Why are we doing? It's this? very unnecessary. <laughs> it is huge and over the top and sort of expensive and. <laughs> exists only to milk uh, the viewing, or in this case, the listening audience of no money for us. Of their time. Of their time. Of their precious, precious time. Sort of like how all of us got our time milked to watch all of these sequels. But in case this is your first time listening, and dear God, why is this the first episode you've chosen? Back to the Movies is a podcast where we return to certain years of cinema history and examine the films that made it what it was. Our first season is on the year 1990, and it turns out 1990 had a plethora of prominent sequels to major films from the decade before. Unfortunately, most of these movies have not stood the test of time. Mm. And we didn't want to labor our listeners with a single episode on the likes of Die Hard 2 and RoboCop 2. So we thought, let's just put them all together, make it a big fun shindig. What could go wrong? Yeah, there were a ridiculous amount of sequels to pretty prominent 80s franchises in 1990. It's kind of unreal. It feels like it was the year that the studios were out of ideas. There, So we got to go back to the well. <laughs> what what did we have that did well in the 80s? Bring it back. Each one of us has a specialty movie. Right. And some of us have seen all of the others. Some of us have seen some of the others. So... Let's go around and tell everybody which movies each of us is going to cover really quick. We'll do it in order. In order. So I'm first, and I'm covering RoboCop 2. I, I had the unique experience of Die Hard 2. All right, thanks, John. 
Eddie? I was charged with uh, unpacking the dumpster fire that is Predator 2. <laughs> Davide? And I had the pleasure of not Psycho 2 or 3, but Psycho 4. Yes. <laughs> Probably the pinnacle of the films that, that were viewed today. Uh, and I'll be capping us off with a discussion of everyone's favorite underdog Philly boxer, Rocky Balboa, with Rocky Five. Oh boy. The lowest grossing and worst reviewed entry in that franchise. <laughs> <laughs> it's too bad we didn't get a three in there. We only we have three twos, a five. I can't even think of what we have. Four twos and a five? I guess it was a good year for massive deuces. <laughs> <laughs> ah, nice. Badoomch. All right. That's enough faffing about because we got work to do. Let's get right down to it. Well, hold on a second. Could we just talk about why we go to a sequel in the first place like what's what's something you're looking for in a sequel is it just that you want more of the same from the first movie what is it about sequels that makes you want to go to them in the first place that's a good question confirmation bias <laughs> like i i don't walk into a sequel thinking oh boy i get to watch the same thing again but i walk into it saying i'm going to watch something that they thought was connected to the first one. And if I like the first one, I'll probably like the second one. Okay. The existence of this film validates my love of the first film. <laughs> it expands It expands on what we know and hoping that it kind of illuminates that. It usually doesn't, but you hope it does. Yeah, totally. I think every story invites comment. And the best sequels are the ones that allow us to perceive the original movie in a different way. I mean, Godfather 2 is the ultimate example of this, right? where it recontextualizes what we've seen before and we have to reconsider what we loved in the first film and what the first film was telling us. Okay, I like that too. I guess to answer my own question, I'm just more in it. I, I like what you said too, Ben, but I'm more in it just for, just if they can get a similar creative team or like a majority of the creative team, you kind of hope that they can make something almost as good as the first one. <laughs> like if they get the same actors and maybe if they're lucky enough to get the same director... There, maybe they'll get some more moments. Just and... gotta chase that high. Yeah, exactly. I would like to put a pin at this exact moment for me to reference back to when I talk <laughs> later. <laughs> I think Disney does a good job with this, though. I know it's different from The Godfather 2, but with you take something like uh, Finding Nemo 2, or I forgot what the actual title was, or Toy Story 2, you have a great ensemble that is able to then jump into another adventure and it's almost as good as the first and doesn't really have this kind of, like, we're trying to, you know, get... Uh, get box office sure. tickets out of this. There were mm -hmm. there were new stories to tell with those characters. I mm -hmm. mean, oftentimes the most successful right. sequels are ones that focus, that are built on franchises with strong characters and a large cast of strong characters. I'm thinking like Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, stuff mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, totally. But unfortunately, other than maybe Rocky, I don't know if any of the movies we're going to talk about necessarily had the foundations for a great sequel. Um, but... Uh, let us begin. <laughs> All right. So, Nat, you're going to lead us off with a discussion of RoboCop 2. RoboCop 2. Who watched it? Just you, Ben? I, I did watch it. I finished watching it an hour and a half ago. So the wounds are fresh. <laughs> they are fresh. <laughs> All right. So RoboCop 2 is the sequel to 1987's RoboCop, directed by Paul Verhoeven. Great film. Great movie. I love it. I've seen it multiple times, and it just has stood the test of time. Even though it's very dated, it sort of is dated in a really good way, and they managed to make just a super entertaining movie that totally holds up. Let's start to the peanut gallery. You guys got RoboCop 1 opinions? 
I understand that there is a series of movies about a robot who is also a police officer. <laughs> there has been some memes. Great. Okay, so we've got a lot of people who are familiar with the franchise. <laughs> I mean, what it boils down to is like the six million dollar man meets corporate fascism. It's like cool. Cool. all these evil assholes in slate gray suits. And they control the police force, which has been privatized. And it's great. It's it's super satirical. And there's like fake advertisements. Now, unfortunately, RoboCop 2 didn't stick it where RoboCop 1 did. It's sort of the typical kind of crappy sequel to a really good movie <laughs> where it's like wearing the skin suit. Of RoboCop 1? I was going to say, can I suggest a metaphor? It's like they shot RoboCop 1 with a bunch of shotguns and then put him in a poorly moving robot suit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's the RoboCop of RoboCop. So, yeah, it's just unfortunate because they get a lot of things right. They get the aesthetic right, which is one of my favorite things about RoboCop. They get the most of the main actors that survived the first movie back. So you're kind of like, okay, they got the right people back. But it's just that the story they're trying to tell is a mishmash of like three or four different things, and it just doesn't really work. Walk us through the plot, talking to people who've never seen RoboCop 1. Oh my god, I can barely do it. It's like, RoboCop is, is on the streets, but he is dealing with a police strike because a corporation owns the police, and they're not paying enough, and they're also trying, the corporation is trying to get the police to stop working so that they can claim the city is lost and demolish it so that they can build a huge development. There's also a drug, a super drug on the streets that's screwing everyone up. And there's a drug dealer and there's a whole cartel. And basically, uh, it's terrible. <laughs> so RoboCop is on the streets. He tracks down the drug dealers. They mutilate him like in the first movie. And... There's just all this stuff that I can't even make sense of what exactly happened in this movie. But what it boils down to is that the corporation has a crazy lady working for it. She ends up putting the brain of a killer, a, a crazed killer, in a new RoboCop. And that RoboCop goes around, kills a bunch of people. Of course. And then first RoboCop kills that RoboCop. That's literally the movie. You know what my favorite thing about this movie is, Nat? <laughs> What's that? Whenever they are talking about RoboCop 2, the, the the new robot cop that they have made in the movie, they're like, it's better than the first one. Are you guys ready to see RoboCop 2? <laughs> Audience, wink, wink. It's a very clever idea that I'm sure a very smart, satirical person came up with, but it is just not worthy. The, the movie is not worthy of that satire. Well, do you know who wrote this movie? Who wrote this movie? Frank Miller. Frank the Miller. Oh, famous, God. infamous, maybe, comic creator, came up with a story and was one of the co-writers on the film. Oh, my God. I mean, it kind of shows, because the, the movie is a bit of a hot mess, and I feel like all the Frank Miller media I've consumed, which is 300 and Sin City, is also kind of messy and just all over the place and lots of ideas trying to be strewn about. And when it's good, it's good. But in this case, it's just kind of slap a slap job. Is the plot just plot just weak? Is it just the plot is apart weak? I, I think scenes? what it really boils down to is that the movie lacks 
the really good bad guys of the first movie. The first right. movie mm. has like three or four great bad guy performances that are super memorable and super emphasized. In this, it's it's like somebody took out a toy chest and was just like, okay, here's a bad guy, here's a bad guy, here's a bad guy. And one of the bad guys is a kid, a little shit kid in a, <laughs> in a pinstripe suit, which is such a bad idea. It's so bad to ever put a kid in your movie. There should never be any kids in any movies except for uh, Paper Moon. That's the only movie it works. So the kid in question was an actor named Gabriel Damon. He won uh, numerous awards for his performance in this film. Which awards? It's terrible. I think oh, it's important don't... that we specifically call out which fucking awards. All right. Hold on. I got to go the back Golden to Raspberry. Wikipedia. Golden Raspberry, best <laughs> supporting actor. That's a very prestigious award. But he's like a kid. They, uh... They put this kid in, and they're they're trying to make him edgy. He curses, he shoots RoboCop, and every time you think that he's going to turn around and become a good little boy, he doesn't. And by the end of the movie, he's literally dressed up like Scarface doing a deal with like other crime figures. And it's so ridiculous, but it's not good ridiculous. It's just like, it's bad ridiculous, and you... You just aren't enjoying watching it at all. It's not the intended effect of like, look, it's a kid and he's a villain in RoboCop, but just doesn't work. I'm sorry. Gabriel Damon was nominated for the best performance by a younger actor at the Saturn Awards in 1990. Saturn Awards are a sci-fi specific award. Huh. I don't think there are any children in any of Paul Verhoeven's other three sci-fi movies that we talked about on Total Recall. Not really. I think there's none. There's a kid in RoboCop, but like he isn't a character. It's Alex's kid, Alex Murphy's kid. Right. That doesn't count. I'm talking about like real deal characters. And I think it's like, it's really hard to put a kid in your movie and not have it be cringe. You got to get a great kid. The role has to make sense. This role could have been played by a 30 year old kid. Uh, <laughs> a 30 year old Could have been child. anybody, honestly. Yeah. Uh, it was. It really brought the movie down in a big way. I'll also mention there's a couple other annoying antagonist characters. There's this mayor who sucks. is really young and just a bad performance. And the, I thought it was like Gary Coleman. Like that's the energy. It's yeah. like really hyper, really young dude playing the mayor of the uh, of Detroit. And it's so irritating. I'd say the best villain is probably the woman on the board at Omnicorp, who is sort of the architect of all the bad things that happen in the movie. And even she doesn't get that much to do in the second half. She doesn't get a comeuppance. She doesn't get anything. Questions. I had a question that I went on to IMDb and accidentally answered myself because I went, who, where was like, we should hire this kid. I'm hung up on the kid. (laughs) And... His IMDb, his top two films, RoboCop 2, so this was his, like, starring role, but then the next one is he was Littlefoot in The Land Before Time. Wow. Holy shit. Wow. Uh, I think there you go. we were in some sort of situation where someone was like, listen, we got to bring in a younger audience to RoboCop 2 because this is important for children <laughs> to see. Wait, I know a child actor. Get Littlefoot. We got Littlefoot. Get me Littlefoot. Let's get him to play a murdering, drug peddling sociopath. That'll really please all the kids. Did this come out with uh, 
with an R rating or a PG-13 rating? Definitely R. It's a rated R movie. Mm-hmm. It's it's very violent. There's a lot of... I will say this. The, the good is that the movie has a great aesthetic, like I mentioned before. They kind of nail that, like, corporate, slate gray, late 80s, early 90s aesthetic that is sort of enjoying, like, a weird Instagram popularity today. Like, it's sort of the basis for, like, vaporwave <laughs> aesthetic, which is now, like, a thing if you go on YouTube. Uh, and search like vaporwave mix. There's like all these slate gray office buildings and shit. So they got that aesthetic right. They try to mimic a lot of things that were done in Robocop 1 because there's great things in Robocop 1. There's all the fake ads. There's the people getting destroyed by squibs when they get machine gun. That, that probably happens like 10 or 15 times. But none of them, the ads or the squibs, are as effective as in the first movie because it doesn't have that Verhoeven charm. It's missing like the gleefulness of his particular view. Well, I'll tell you what, if you listen to total recall, maybe it's because the director Irving Kirshner didn't witness war crimes (laughs) when he was five years old, like Verhoeven did. That's a true story. Verhoeven watched his neighbors and friends get (laughs) firebombed by the allies during world war two. And to him, it was one grand adventure. That's how he describes it. Yeah. When he was like five years old. So, Kirshner, who's most famous for directing The Empire Strikes Back, which is obviously one of the most famous, well-regarded sequels of all time, did this RoboCop 2. I don't know if it was just like a a job for him or if he really wanted to bring something new to the table, but to me, it seems like he was trying to just do that classic, more of the same sequel. It don't If it ain't broke, don't fix it type of stuff. He's just too placid. A, a, a director for something like RoboCop, which has such a strong point of view. Exactly. He works great in the mold of Star Wars where he can just tell grand stories and focus on the human element of it. But here it misses that 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 irony that makes RoboCop so fun. Yeah, exactly. And I will mention there are some good moments in this movie. It's not all bad. I really enjoyed it when RoboCop gets mutilated and they have to reprogram him and for some reason the board is in charge of reprogramming robocop and famously robocop has only three directives that are like protect citizens don't break a law but but the corporate board just has like a a meeting where it's like 10 board members and they're like it'd be great if he was environmentally friendly and can he do more for kids so robocop ends up getting like 150 different directives and for about 10 minutes the movie becomes really funny because he becomes this weird PC, nonviolent, just spouting idioms, spouting idioms and not actually being effective in any way. Cop patrolling the streets. And it's pretty funny. And it's a dig at corporations yeah. and how ineffective a board could be. I think it's also a dig at people who criticize RoboCop for being too nasty. The first movie. It could be. <laughs> because they're specifically like one of the comments is like, all he ever does is shoot people. Right. And yeah, there's a lot of sequel like sort of that 22 Jump Street like sequel satire in this movie, but it doesn't really feel earned because the movie underneath just isn't very good. All right, we should wrap this up pretty soon, but I want to pick your brain on two things. Sure. First off, Tom Noonan, maybe the most recognizable actor in this movie somehow. Yeah, he plays the, the big bad guy who ends up getting turned into RoboCop 2. Tom Noonan, if you're unfamiliar, uh, he plays Francis Dollarhide in Manhunter, the Michael Mann film. He is a very distinct looking man with a very, very tall, very long face. Looks very, he's a very creepy looking dude. 
And he's a wonderful actor. Yeah, and Tom Noonan is not great in this movie. He is no, not. he's bad. He's not effective as a villain. He's really bland. And I just think he was a bad cast. You needed somebody who was a little more lively to kind of bring life. I feel like none of the characters in this movie have much joie de vie. Like, yeah, they're all kind of glum. <laughs> no one's having any fun. So I think that's another reason that this movie fails. Boddicker, who's the villain in the... He's like the henchman in the first movie. He is a terrible asshole, but he's having such a good time doing all the terrible things that he does, and he's very watchable. And this movie just didn't have it. The movie struggles the same way uh, by replacing Ronnie Cox with the Donald Johnson character, Felton Perry's character, who's like so meek and quiet compared to Ronnie Cox who plays like the evil corporate guy in the first movie, and it's totally megalomaniacal. Well, okay, one question I want to ask about this, and then the, the one we'll stop talking about this movie. But so that old guy in this movie was the same old guy in the first movie. Yes, yeah, he's the old one, man, the president of OCP. It's weird because he's sort of terrible, but the movie almost seems to admire him. And at the end of the movie, he doesn't get in trouble. He is just sort of this benevolent corporation leader, but... I couldn't tell, like, is he supposed to be an evil person or is he just being duped? Like, what does he want? I think the movie comes down very firmly on the side that he is an evil, but he, but it's cynical about it. It's like he's Yeah, he doesn't get his just comeuppance and neither does the, the lady that kind of fucked everything up. So only the cr street criminals end up being killed. Unlike RoboCop 1, where all of the executives get viciously and gloriously murdered. So just sort of a disappointment. All right. Two more things I think worth mentioning. First, I found it very hard to watch a movie that was about how we don't pay police enough in, right yeah, now. Yeah, that's the other thing. That was really upsetting. A lot of these movies have not aged well, particularly in 2020, because it's just a different time. This is a time when crime is at its worst in America. So a lot of people are just like, shoot criminals, and police are great, and it's bad out there watch out everybody the, the streets are crazy so these movies sort of reflect that a little bit and it's a bit uncomfortable in this day and age the last thing i want to get your opinion on because i have strong opinions on it is the design of robocop 2 of the new robot oh. cop they made so lame it looks like the, the special effects have not aged well in this movie it looks like toys it looks like when i was 10 years old <laughs> and i had my toys and i was just like I had like a, a VHS cam and I was just like banging them together. There are literally parts like that. of the fight scene that look like that. But it's so funny because I had the same reaction, but I felt the opposite about it. I love the design of RoboCop 2. I think it's super cool and I want a really highly detailed toy version of RoboCop 2. The CGI lawnmower man Tom Noonan face sucks, but I love the rest of it. Oh, God. And I actually love that fight scene with all the stop motion animation. I thought it was really uh, fun. I did not like that scene. I thought it just looked kind of bad, especially compared to something like Total Recall. I think that the first RoboCop used that stop motion way less and it was way more effective. And also that RoboCop 2 doesn't have the cool sound design that the the walker guy with the weird animal sound. That's true. Sounds. Ed 209 has great sound design so that this does not. It's just, I'm sorry, but like if I was on the Olympic... Uh, judging, and this was like a ski jump, I'd I'd throw up like the four. <laughs> like, it's just, it's a weak, weak attempt, trying to redo the first one, and not worth, not worth a while. I will not be watching part three. So are, are you guys going to go seek out RoboCop 2? Is this like a to burn all existing copies situation? <laughs> Definitely watch RoboCop 1, because it's a great movie. Great artifact from the 80s. Don't bother with any other RoboCop movie. 
this movie did fine. We like to cover the box office quickly. It had a 25 to $30 million budget. Um, and it winds up grossing 45 domestically. So like it didn't make money between marketing. When was it released? Uh, June 22nd opened to 14 million opening weekend. So it had a pretty strong opening oh, wow. weekend, but it just didn't stick around. The movie just wasn't good enough. Yeah. We like to play a little game here. We call the ranking game where we try and guess where the movie landed on the list of uh, the domestic box office for 1990. So like, how well did this movie do relative to other 1990 movies? You guys want to take guesses on this one? Oh my god! Where do you think 45 million lands you in 1990? I'm gonna say I have no concept of. I'm gonna say eight, based on nothing at all. My educated guess is gonna put us at like 35 or so. Andy and Davide, you guys can do over under on net. Who thinks it was lower than 35? Who thinks it was higher than 35? I'll go over. Over. I, I also say higher than 35, but definitely not in the top 10. Definitely not in the top 10. Okay. And the answer is, drum roll, 27. It missed the top mm. 25 films of the year, uh, but didn't didn't land all the way down at 35. So, Davide, okay. you're the winner. Pretty good. I've declared you the winner. One point for Davide. Oh, shit. It's competitive. We're gamifying the podcast. <laughs> I knew this day would come. When you start a podcast with me, there have to be games involved. All right. Next week, we're doing a plank-up competition. <laughs> uh, Andy. What's up? Talk to us about Predator 2. Okay. You need to prepare to edit this down because I'm about to go to war with this movie. <laughs> Appropriate, given how this movie starts. <clears throat> If failure is the greatest teacher, these filmmakers may be the wisest people in the world because <laughs> there is just so much to be desired from Predator 2 that it really seems like at every level, the movie just kind of caught on fire and fell to the ground. I would say, you know, uh, we're so we're going with the premise that our uh, listeners may not know the uh, the franchise or the, the first movie yeah give us the basest context i mean has everyone here seen predator i have not i've never seen it either oh oh baby you haven't seen predator believe it or not there are movies out there that i haven't seen and predator is one of them so i guess all right to explain it i'm gonna give you the context that i first came to, to predator and so when i was a kid my parents owned the little video store in town so we would get to watch you know a lot of a lot of different films and they would always be trying to keep up you know, with what was going on. And on different nights or different occasions, you could expect the elder Gagnons to put on something kind of different. So like, you know, family movie night, you're probably going to get, you know, some of the blockbusters or the crowd pleasers. You got, you know, movie night with mom where it's, you know, some more, uh, you know, historical fiction kind of stuff. And then there are the nights when mom's, you know, out of the house or she's going to bed early and it's me and the old man watching a movie for guys who like movies. Predator 1 may be one of the most fitting movies to that category that I have ever come across in my life. It is basically like mainlining testosterone from the first <laughs> shots of this film. One of the most emblematic shots uh, that has been memed in recent years is when Arnold Schwarzenegger and Carl Weathers, the two uh, main characters of the film, see each other for the first time and enter into a bro clasp of hands. And the shot is just, a, you know, beautifully framed, giant vascular biceps uh, <laughs> just sweating in the South American heat. 
So, I mean, basically, the situation is it's an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. So you don't need to go into too much more, you know, detail of the kind of universe you're being dropped into from there. And then it's Arnold Schwarzenegger and Carl, Carl Weathers versus an alien called the Predator who is there to hunt human beings. And it can turn invisible and it's got cool space tech. And it's really, you know, despite being basically a live action cartoon, it's actually a pretty solid movie. There's some really great cinematography. The pacing is exciting and interesting. The sort of mystery of the viewer getting to discover the nature of this alien with uh, the main characters is fun. It was directed by our friend on the podcast, John McTiernan, who did Hunt for Red October. It was written by Shane Black or had a punch up from Shane Black. So the script has got a bunch of great dialogue in it. It's a solid flick. I mean, you know, if if you know what you're in for, if you know what you are about to get, it gives you exactly that. It does not disappoint. And I mean, you know, it's got get to the chopper in it. That's like what? <laughs> I'm sorry. Sorry, Andy. Can you take that again? Sorry. It didn't sound it's quite got right to me. Get to the chopper in it. Which, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, wow. what, do you, what do you want? It's got... I ain't got time to bleed. Yes. Yes. So obviously the best thing to do would be to make a sequel. Yeah. Because more is more. I mean, why not? You you know, the Predator was only in one environment. You know, it, it clearly could go somewhere else. And I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger, after a really exciting climactic one-on-one uh, -on -one battle with the initial Predator wins, wouldn't it be great to see what he could do now that he knows what's going on? That would have been really nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> Here's what happened instead. Schwarzenegger takes a look at the second script and says he's not going to touch it with a 10-foot pole because it looks like there trash. There was a role written for him. There was a role written. Who did they cast in that role instead? Let me... Uh... <laughs> you can't get Arnold. You can't, you can't get, get Arnold, Arnold. He passed. It's 1990. Who, who you... are you going to go to next? Just a little up-and-coming actor who had a pretty breakout role in the Lethal Weapon movies. No, I'm not talking about Mel Gibson. I'm talking about Gary Busey. <laughs> the poor man's Arnold Schwarzenegger. That is true. Right. I and All right. Walk us through the plot. Okay. Okay. So Predator 2. Oh, my God. All right. So we're in L.A. It's not the jungle. It's the urban it's jungle. It's the concrete jungle. And the opening shot really, like, hits that right on the nose with some nice, like, you know, jungle music and the uh, tropical... Uh, flora and then pans up with a nice suspended symbol roll to the skyline of 1997 LA. Yes, it's set seven years in the future, which is the weirdest freaking number of years for a movie to be set in the future, I think I've ever heard of. And uh, we are dropped into the middle of a street war with a Colombian cocaine gang and some cops with the media scrambling to provide the hungry public with the coverage that they need. Hardcore. Hardcore. That's the name of the newscast. Oh, I thought you were just making an exclamation then. <laughs> There's a recurring newscaster, and his news program is called Hardcore. Well, it was L.A. in 1997. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. So we get dropped in to uh, gun-blazing shootout. We, we get dropped in. Like, there's no context. It's just... Gunshots and explosions. It's just a hot mess. I, th I think the first line you hear is a reporter trying to report and then just screaming, ah, fuck it, and throwing the camera down. So there we are. 
And uh, uh, pretty pretty soon after that, we get shown Predator Vision, which is sort of the iconic infrared style uh predator point of view shot where we can see that the alien is watching what's going on so we're, we're invited to know that predator is here and then pretty soon here comes danny glover the star of the film uh driving in like a bat out of hell grabbing some guns from his car and uh he's got a trunk full of guns. trunk full of guns and uh yeah then we're we're pretty much off to the races from there the first half of the movie is is basically just uh watching cocaine dealers get slaughtered by the predator with Danny Glover kind of <laughs> trying to figure out what the hell's going on. And Gary Busey's pretty underutilized and forgettable character, Peter Keyes, uh, trying to kind of keep a lid on the situation behind the scenes. He's like government cover. Up yeah. Dude. He's, he's with the suits. So they're, yeah, they're trying to lock it down and keep things under control. I just want to quickly talk about Danny Glover's team in this movie. Cause it's got a couple of interesting faces. It does. Who's the standout, would you say? Okay. To me, the 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 one who you, you got to come back to is Bill Paxton's character. Who Bill Paxton. I, honestly, like, if I were to put him in a 90s-ish era movie, like, he would be very comfortable in The Mask. That's, like, the kind of universe that he's living in. <laughs> but he happens to be in Predator 2. So it's a very interesting, almost cartoonish sort of character who is the new guy on the force helping out Danny Glover. He's doing his Bill Paxton shtick. It's a ton of fun. Yeah. The other one I wanted to mention for our podcast listeners is uh, Danny Glover's best friend, a detective named Danny, is played by Reuben Blades. And uh, eagle-eyed listeners or eagle-eared listeners might remember that name from our Q&A discussion on the Crime Triple feature. He was the songwriter behind the totally incomprehensibly placed bizarre song, The Hit, that featured prominently in Q&A. You know, I've been jamming to that song. It's a pretty good song outside of Q&A. <laughs> outside of Q&A, it's real fun. Yeah. Cheesy, but fun. Wow. <laughs> Don't double cross the ones you love, Nat. Don't double cross the ones you love. What do you think of Danny in this movie, Andy? In case somebody wanted to know about Ruben's acting ability. Yeah, he's there. <laughs> That's accurate. He, he's present. He, he is a police officer. He is Lieutenant... Mike Harrigan's friend, and uh, then he dies. Do the kills stack up against Predator 1? RoboCop, they they were not as good, but I feel like you're coming here for the kills. Well, it's a yes and no. I mean, they, they definitely up the ante, and there's a lot there's a lot more scenarios that they can play with, given the, the very... Uh, I mean, the unique environment of the city yeah. is a fun playground to have a Predator stalking through, but <laughs> in the first movie... People's arms get chopped off while they're still firing an Uzi. People explode. It doesn't, it lacks a bunch of that stuff. Yeah. There's plenty of people hanging upside down skinned, but that's about it. Yeah. Mm. It's a, it's a quantity versus quality game. There, there are a lot of gotcha. drug, drug dealers going down. Also, they don't take, give you the time to be invested in anyone who's dying. They're, the bodies are just dropping left and right before you even know who they are. I would rather get three kills that are amazing than like 20 kills that are that are lame. Yeah. So we mentioned that there was a Colombian gang. Can we talk about the other gang? Oh my God. Yeah. We're going to need to. So the other gang is the Jamaican Coke gang, uh, which actually it sounds, it, they're kind of hinting that there's a few gangs all led by, help me out. King Willie. Is that his name? King Willie. Okay. Who uh, casts the bones right. to read Mike Harrigan's future. Okay. I'm going to be totally honest. I kind of dig the Jamaican gang. It's a bunch of really buff dudes in dreadlocks speaking in Jamaican accents. I just, I liked it because it was 
non-traditional, right? We've seen Colombian drug gangs. I've never seen a Jamaican gang. I mean, yeah, the Jamaican gang, look, that yeah, they're they're crazy like to see on on screen. The first time you see them, they start performing a self-described voodoo ritual on one of their Colombian enemies who's hanging nude upside down before the predator comes in and starts fucking shit up. It is true that they are not your average 90s movie drug gang. That said, what the hell is going on with them? Because, like, you get the shots of midway through the movie, Danny Glover decides he needs to go and talk to the Jamaican kingpin, and they roll up in their clam-baked, zebra-hooded car and it's they got the like a fog machine going it's just it's, it's oozing weed smoke out into the street it's pretty racist it's, it's pretty racist and i mean let's also talk about the fact that if you're that baked you're not going to be looking to like get into a gun war with a rival <laughs> gang you're gonna want to go to mcdonald's did you guys get the sense that from what i'm hearing i didn't watch this movie but did you get the sense that somebody had like a warriors-esque script that they had to like turn into a predator movie is that what this is well <laughs> or was somebody just like holding all these ideas of all these crazy so la gangs the, and decided to put a predator so the in script there. from from what i could tell about the script they banged out the script in under a month it was like a three-week project and a bunch of things changed first of all it's an arnold schwarzenegger movie that no longer has arnold schwarzenegger it was originally going to be in new york and then got moved to la for budget reasons you know the list goes on and on. It really seems like a very rushed, very muddled job where there's some ideas that never got <laughs> strong all the way through. Like, again, 1997. What are we doing? Why are we seven years <laughs> in the future? The only time that that comes into play is when L.A. has a subway that it didn't have yet. And there's <laughs> right because they wanted it to be. The, New York. Yeah. The one scene <laughs> oh where there's a talking computer. I honestly I kind of think that when they had to move from New York or from L.A. to New York, they just went, oh, fuck it. But in the future, then there can be a subway. Oh, no. Seven years. Well, the other thing that you get is all of the cops have like sweet modded guns sure. with extended mags and scopes and lasers. <laughs> They're like, it was the height of 1990 cool to have a, a Beretta with a scope on it. Tactical. Tactical. <laughs> uh, just to quickly like wrap up the plot. We, we spend the first half of the movie with this gang war and with... Danny Glover trying to figure out who's killing all these mobsters. But then the second half of the movie is pretty much just him versus the Predator. Yeah. Yep. Which is, you know, kind of like what, if you watch Predator 1 and you liked it, that's kind of what you've been hoping for. Mano a mano. The cards are out on the table. The Predator and the hero know the score. And now it's a battle of strength and intelligence to see who will be victorious. I gotta say, I actually like this part of the movie quite a bit. There were some fun moments. Uh, you still had the the taste of poor character development in your mouth, <laughs> but yeah, there, you know, it, it got it got back to sort of the roots of what made the original successful. There's certainly some fun ideas. I like how they turn the table on the predator, where they use heat masking clothing and radioactive dust to make it so that they're invisible to the predator but they can see the predator so like that was kind of a fun reversal but of course it goes wrong because they underestimate the predator's technology i thought it was a cool sequence and then i just love like beleaguered danny glover shimmying along pipes on the top of a building okay grumbling to himself about the sh about all the stuff okay. he's gotta we got it we got to talk about that for a second that was so i was on board i was like buckled in we were doing the predator thing we were duking it out. 
and then the predator without getting into a ton of detail the predator's out of commission for a couple minutes he needs to heal himself up and then we spend some quality alone time with danny glover and he just i mean it's danny glover so what you know what do you expect but he just turns into murtaugh <laughs> grumpy old man he's damn birds i'm getting too old for this yeah, shit exactly it's one step away from and i for me like like obviously he's got two lethal weapons under his belt at this point right like yeah, yeah. you know you gotta lean on what works but dude it just is murtaugh up on that roof scrambling around muttering to himself about birds <laughs> and it kind of it kind of ripped me out of the moment a little bit I, wait what the fuck like where's mel gibson what's going on dude they should have gotten mel for for keys okay see then <laughs> they could have done a franchise crossover right they, what if they just had done great. lethal weapon three versus that Predator? that would have been amazing they could have done it too because of shane black totally what the hell he was too big a star at that point to play second fiddle oh my god he could have also been the bill paxton character although that's almost too lethal weapon <laughs> the conversations with the disgruntled chief any, you got any other like closing thoughts here? I, I mean, okay, few, few just fun trivia things that I think are are worth bringing up. I will say the production of this movie it sounds like was a real slog. Like they were in bad parts of uh, L.A. to keep the budget down. They had some shoots where residents were throwing bags filled with human feces at them because they didn't like the noise. <laughs> and apparently, in one of the shots, they were uh, in an alley. And while they were setting up the lights, they found an actual dead body on set (laughs) and had to pause production until (laughs) the dead body could be removed. So, I mean, you know, I'll give it up that it sounds like these guys had some serious mountains that they had to climb. And that's why you go for the budget to shoot in New York. Yeah. (laughs) They get the dead body out way faster. I mean, yeah. I think it is also worth knowing that the climax of the film happens on a spaceship that just kind of shows up at the bottom of an elevator shaft. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how that spaceship got down <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah, it. you know, at that point... You do see later that it, like, there's, like, a big burned-out part of turf when he walks out of the tunnel, but... I think we should have a cocaine rating for each movie. <laughs> how much cocaine was consumed for the production. This one gets four time bags. Like, yeah, four kilos. <laughs> what does RoboCop 2 get on the cocaine rating? It's a low cocaine rating. That was clearly made by drug haters. That gets a Xanax rating. <laughs> gets, uh, <laughs> Andy, what's the cocaine rating on, on Predator 2? First 10 minutes, uh, 9 out of 10. There are fistfuls of cocaine. <laughs> There's a shot where a guy grabs a fistful of cocaine and shoves it into his bullet wound. <laughs> True. Oh <my> God. <laughs> that feels like it would be effective. I have to say, so the director of Predator 2 was a man named Stephen Hopkins. I want to mention him and I want to mention one of his early credits just because it's going to be a weird, small sub theme that we're going to see in a couple of these movies. He directed the fifth Nightmare on Elm Street film. God damn it. It turns out the Nightmare on Elm Street series was a great incubator for hyperkinetic uh, directors who would make an attempts to break into the industry in the 90s. But I feel like his conception of how to direct an action scene is bombard the audience with contextless mayhem and then have a character sort of drive through the middle of it. <laughs> That's every action scene in this movie. Like, nothing builds. In Robocop 2, an action scene builds in a way that's coherent and makes sense. But not in, in Predator 2. In Predator 2, it starts at 10 and then has nowhere to go. Yeah, that's that's a really good way to put it. So if I were to wrap this up, I guess my main thing that I must admit is sometimes 
I just want an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. And I think that this movie was never going to win me over because it was an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie without Arnold Schwarzenegger. Mm. Um, I would also mention that if you want a good chuckle, somehow this seemingly cursed production found time to shoot a two and a half minute long dance sequence on the Predator spaceship with the Predators and Danny Glover in full costume. And that <laughs> is worth seeking out. Fuck. Yes! So if nothing else, right. it gave us that. Amazing. I just upped the cocaine rate. <laughs> <laughs> on a budget of $35 million, this movie opened November 21st, a holiday film, to $9 million. Ooh. This movie was trounced by a little film called Home Alone. Mm. Ah. We're going to talk about this at the end of our season, but Home Alone was a juggernaut. It demolished the box office holiday 1990, and nothing else that opened stood a chance. This went on to gross $28 million domestic, $55 worldwide. Ranking game? $55 is a little higher than $46. What are we thinking? $24? I say uh, top 25. 39? Top 25. $24, $39 from Nat, which is clearly wrong, but that's fine. Andy? I'll go... Oh, I did my math wrong. Uh, Whatever. 27. No, we already had 27. I'll go 28. 28. Davide, can I get you to narrow down a little um, bit more? You know what? I'll say top 20. Top 20. It was, drum roll, 39. Wow. Nat is Wait, the winner. What? <laughs> How did I get it right? It's domestic. I, 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 I tricked you all by misremembering Gross. that we don't look at the worldwide gross. We only look at the domestic gross. Oh, you tricked us by misremembering. <laughs> All right. It is 39 and neck. It's the point. Ben, how do you win every time? It's amazing. All right. Um, that's pretty good. I mean, for a shitty sequel to predator. Yeah, it's fine. I mean, predator was a surprise smash hit. I don't think the studio execs were happy about it using our formula of, you know, budget doubled for total budget, including marketing. It lost money. It made less than its budget domestically. That's also a bad yeah. indicator. It was kind of a dud. The franchise continues to exist. It, Did they it, make more? Yeah, there was there was one a couple years ago. There's a pretty good one called Predators that, that takes place on a foreign planet. I like that one a lot. And then there was the Shane Black, The Predator. But there wasn't there weren't any more like nineties. I, I have a pretty no, clear delineation between like two thousand and the, when they started well, just rebooting. Yeah, everything. It, the Predator returns with Alien versus Predator in the early two thousands. I, I will say right. Alien vs. Predator lands is one of those movies that I go, this is not a good movie, but it's an excellent movie. <laughs> Fans will already know this, but that seed is planted in Predator 2 because when we're on the Predator ship, we see a xenomorph skull amongst the trophies the Predator's collected. Perfect. Let's move on. John, talk to us about Die Hard 2. Okay. So I need to start by pointing out that I love Die Hard 1. Like, a wow. lot. I really love Die Hard. It's a great film. I mean, has everyone seen Die Hard? Yes. Yes. Many times. Ah! We we found one. Yeah. Everybody's seen it. Everyone, Everyone's a fan of Die Hard, right? It's hard not to like Die Hard. It's like a Christmas movie about a guy who will stop at nothing in order to get that feeling of family togetherness. <laughs> up to and including killing lots of terrorists look when we do the 1988 miniseries i will talk about the diehard christmas movie debate but we don't have time for that right now we gotta talk about diehard 2 <laughs> well it's a christmas movie diehard 2 <laughs> is also a movie that is set during christmas which hold on a second why is it set at christmas because diehard 1 ends with the great line that argyle says where he's like 
if this is Christmas, I gotta be there for New Year's. Why isn't Die Hard 2 set at New Year's? Well, then, I have a theory that Die Hard 2 was made entirely by someone who saw Die Hard 1 and said, what if we just did everything exactly the same, but more? <laughs> All right, talk to me about what you mean. So, with the exception of John McClane's character and intelligence, everything else in this movie is take Die Hard 1 and dial it to 11. Over and over again. Give me a specific. So, uh, if, if we just go number of vehicles blown up, I think we lose, like, a couple <laughs> cop cars and maybe a truck. You, you trade a helicopter for an airplane. Two <laughs> airplanes and a snowmobile, which I did not know could explode as much as it did. <laughs> they kill one hostage in Die Hard, and they kill, like, 700 people <laughs> in this one. Yeah, like so Lots of innocent slaughter. Yeah, an entire Airbus with a child on it. <laughs> and Cole Meany, poor Cole Meany is the pilot. Ugh, just brutal. But, like, I think the, the biggest difference for me that, like, hurt the most, like, Rennie Harlan had personally attacked me, was that we, we went from the suave one-line zingers of John McClane, who even in the most desperate times, he's not wearing shoes, his feet are mostly comprised of broken glass and blood by the end of Die Hard 1. But he always has that, like, perfect, like, I was always more of a Roy Rogers fan in terms of, like, just slamming home those quips. But then we get Die Hard 2, where the closest thing we have to a good John McClane zinger is when he repeats yippee Kaye, motherfucker in a tone and a timing that more or less should just have catchphrase, like, flashing behind it well yeah it's kind of funny in the first movie he's responding to being called roy rogers and he kind of just says it as like a little aside just to yeah, kind of piss he's off he's just being hans a dick a to bit. hans yeah no, it, nobody else knows what the fuck that it's a means. great line but like it's he it's not something he says when he like pulls off an ollie or you know gets an a plus on his paper it's something he says just to fuck with hans but in this when does he do it it's I think at the very end, right? When the second plane blows up. It's right before he kills all of the bad guys in the stunning creme de la creme checkmate move and lights a, tra a trail of chem fuel that spectacularly explodes the entire plane. And it's like he looks right into the camera and he's like, yippee ki yay, wink, motherfucker. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> we should talk the plot through just a little bit before we jump all the way to the uh, end. Well, okay. So the plot as it stands, it's Christmas, which we know because I, it probably opens with sleigh bells. I might just be making that up. Do in my, they like, play the analysis. same? No, the they same, do not start uh, uh, with run DMC's Christmas. In the no, no, no. The other one that actually, the one that starts die hard. I don't think they do with the jingle bells. They don't have the jingle bells in this one. I don't we'll remember. have to we'll have to watch it again. <laughs> God <Please don't>. no. <laughs> Actually, I mean, I've probably seen this movie like six or seven times at this point. I would be lying if I said I would never watch it again. I, I think this is Stockholm syndrome, Ben. <laughs> John's good to me. He treats me good. John you don't Plain. understand. Hang on, we're, we'll get to the point that I will make later. I'm gonna put a pin right here, and when we come to that point, I'm gonna say, remember that pin, Ben? Okay. Okay. So the the plot, as it stands, is that we open up an 
the Dulles Airport at yes. Christmas. Yes. Washington, D.C. So uh, John McClane is no longer out in California. He's back not in his hometown of New York. He's on the East Coast. But he is being accosted by a fellow officer of the law who was not Richard Kind, but made me think he was Richard Kind. It's our friend Robert Costanzo from Total Recall. Day ah. DeVito's taller cousin. <laughs> who also reminded me of Richard Kind. Anyways, um, so... John McClane starts off having a bad day. He's there to pick up his wife from the airport, but he's already getting a ticket for parking in a spot that you're not supposed to park. And we know that this is being made in 1990 and not any time post-2001 because it's one cop and not a SWAT team. <laughs> um, so He kind of pres- deserves a SWAT team in this movie. He parks in the one, the one place that you know you're going to get towed, like at the <laughs> airport parking lot. And he tries to... It's kind of aged poorly. He's like... Hey, mm-hmm. can't you help out a brother in blue? And you're just kind of like, oh, God. Um, but seriously, what was he thinking? Holly's plane isn't going to land for like another 30 minutes. She's going to have to get her baggage through baggage claim. Why is he in the pickup loop? Go park in the parking lot. Pay the $10 or whatever he's it a, is. He's a goddamn cop. Okay. Uh, sorry. <laughs> and he throws that around so fucking much. So he goes inside and we, we get the um, exposition of the news is talking about this general being extradited from insert South American country because it's 1990. So it has to be the war on drugs. Franco Nero as general Esperanza. And we get a naked Tai Chi scene from someone who is not explained. You just see his naked ass. It's a really crazy way to introduce the villain. Yes. I thought he was going to be John's love interest for this film. but <laughs> <laughs> Man, watch out, Holly. William Sadler playing Colonel Stewart. Quickly, reviews of William Sadler's performance. Is he good in this movie? Is he a good villain? If you wanted to see another Hans Gruber, William Sadler failed to provide. I feel like he's kind of the comic who comes up after the other comic just had the best set ever. And he's kind of <laughs> like, I'm not going to even try to be Hans, okay? I'm just going to get through this set and be like he, he goes, basic military goes like guy. An- anti-Hans rap. Exactly. Which is tragic. Yeah. Because how are you going to follow Hans, you know? <sighs> you can't. So, John McClane proceeds to hang out in the airport bar, not knowing about all of the political machinations of William Sadler, evil general, being paid large sums of money to free South American evil general. But he sees a couple people acting sketchy at the airport tavern in the square, or whatever the hell this is. So he proceeds to bully an airport employee to let him into the baggage sorter whatever thing where he gets into a gunfight. It takes all of, I timed it, 13 minutes for guns to be drawn and fired. And John McClane has no idea why he's shooting these people. He has just decided that it is time to pursue people into a secure area of an airport and then kill them <laughs> with no warrant, with no evidence. He really does. It's such a turn from the first movie where there's like a really long, drawn-out situation where he realizes that there's terrorists and he doesn't even know what's going on. In this, he just looks at these two guys from across an airport, one of the most crowded places yep. in the world, and just follows them. He's got spider sense, I guess. <laughs> and then decides that he needs to shoot at them instead of some other course of action well they have guns so it's fair game (laughs) yeah i mean unless this is like the 
like Steven Spielberg or sorry George Lucas like sixth cut, the villains did shoot first. Right. I did catch that. No, I think Spielberg's a good reference there too. He didn't CGI the guns and turn them into walkie talkies. No. All right, we gotta we we gotta move this a little faster because. <laughs> We're too granular here. There's so much dense plotting and so many great characters. There's some terrorists. They take over an airport. So it proceeds that they can, they've hacked the airport, like, uh, control systems. So we get a scene where they're told, like, do not try to contact your planes. Like, we have control of this. And then John McClane watches the terrorists take out, like, a SWAT team and then takes out the people who took out a SWAT team. And it's... All, like, classic 80s action, including, like, slow-mo falling through construction scaffolding, <laughs> because that is something that all movies need more of. Spo- spoiler alert, we're talking about Ghosts in a few weeks, and uh, there's more scaffolding in that movie, too. Scaffolding Lots all over the place. Yeah, the construction was really big in 1990, I guess. So the terrorists decide that since their men have been killed, they're going to teach an object lesson, and this is where we get our first plane explosion. As they, like, have hacked the altimeter or whatever it is that tells the planes how close they are to the ground. And they say, yeah, sea level's down here, 200 feet lower, where sea level actually is. And so the plane just crashes into the runway. And we get a a whole scene of action intervention. John McClane trying to wave, like, flaming, like, something to try to warn them. And it doesn't improvised batons. It's pretty messed up. I think that maybe they should have not had it be a plane full of civilians with children. I don't know. This sequence always kind of works for me because it really sets the stakes high. But it's a diehard movie. I don't know. I guess I'm kind of like it's such a bad vibe that he's losing the lives of like hundreds of hundreds of people for a diehard movie. I don't know. Has that even happened in another diehard movie? I don't think so. Well, in like Die Hard 4, things get like apocalyptic for a while. Because like, I don't know, Timothy Oliphant like crashes the internet and like destroys the stock market or something. I don't really Uh, remember what the plot of the movie is, but there's like riots and shit in that one. Okay. I was going to say, hang on, at this point, this sounds like Timothy Oliphant is the hero. (laughs) As someone who has never seen Die Hard 4. No, but because it's a Die Hard movie, he's actually stealing the money. Right. He's not destroying the record so i don't anyway. can we there's like a church right they have to like take over a church yeah so the the church is where they get the input in order to control all of the plane stuff they make a little rascals reference and i was really hoping that we were going to have nicknames for all of the terrorists from the little rascals what what's the i, I don't remember what the line is it's like uh the clubhouse is open or something but no no one else gets called alpha alpha that was disappointing Let's quickly talk about the terrorists, because despite the fact that there are some pretty recognizable faces in in Stewart's crew, you've got John mm-hmm. Leguizamo, Robert Patrick, uh, Don Harvey, Von D. Curtis Hall, faces and names that you recognize, n- none of these guys stand out at all like the original crew from the first movie, who are all unknown actors and like German super. They don't get those little moments that they give them in the first movie. They're all just kind of faceless military guys. All of the villains are like just watered down action mooks. Even the leaders, which is particularly disappointing after you get like Hans Gruber and Carl and their hacker guy, all of whom chew up the scenery throughout all of Die Hard 1. But the closest thing that we get in Die Hard 2 is 
the the general who should have been a Hans Gruber character has one good like can you get get me a light and then uses that to like strangle the guy with his bare hands but again he gets like two scenes I'd also give a, a leg up to the betrayer general he's great John Amos is major great saving uh, that yeah okay so to recap where we are in the plot Terrorists have taken over the airport. They've locked out air traffic control. They've crashed a plane. John's trying to hunt them down. And in comes a special forces squad to help them take down Stuart and his goons, led by John Amos, famous actor uh, from Roots mm. and the Mary Tyler Moore Show, coming to America, great actor, comedian, coming in, taking over the movie, being totally cool. But wait, turns out he's actually working with William Sadler. Excellent heel turn. It works. That that was like legitimately surprising, um, but then it like devolves into like the fight on the plane, which is not like a particularly inspired fight for me. Which is this is a movie of a lot of particularly uninspired fights, but it's just like Bruce Willis hitting this guy who does not move quick. John Amos is known for a great many things, but his martial arts. Yeah, here's what I'm gonna say about Amos is, I think. He's really fun in the movie. He's got some charisma, which the rest of the terrorists mm. are sorely lacking. And which John McClane has been stripped of in this But movie. he is too old and too fat for this <laughs> role. Yeah. He's an absolute unit. <laughs> uh. <laughs> okay. So he betrays them, but John figures it out. There's some gunfights. There's some explosions. We, we have a snowmobile chase. That's nice. And let's just quickly mention the subplot of Holly McClane on the plane with the guy from... The first Die Hard right. movie. The only, William Atherton. The only returning character other than the cameo from the cop. Reginald Val Johnson. Reginald Val Johnson is in this movie for about 30 seconds. He is fourth build. Yeah. It's Bruce Willis, Bonnie <laughs> Bedelia, William Atherton, Reginald Val Johnson. All he does in the movie is send John McClane a fax. Yeah. And I was so hyped for him. I was like, oh, how is he going to get involved? Like, is he going to give intel to John and... He does in one Yeah, fax. and then that's it. I thought he was going to be on the phone with them the whole time, so that was a major bummer. Yeah, I was just going to say, the fact that we didn't get an Argyle, or even an Argyle equivalent, the closest thing we have is the janitor that John McClane threatens at gunpoint like two or three times and just abuses the entire process. And who doesn't exist as a character. No. It's like freshly made mac and cheese versus microwave. It's just, who is that janitor? <laughs> he sucks. He's so lame. Well, he also is so calm about being threatened at gunpoint multiple times. John McClane's like, so you're just going to tell me everything I know? And the guy's like, well, yeah, of course. You use these tunnels. You can get anywhere you want before the bad guys get there. All right. We definitely got to move on to the next movie. But before we do, let's just quickly talk about Bonnie Bedelia and William Atherton and their subplot. Nat, do you have thoughts on this one? You sounded like you did. It's just such a weird way to bring back a random side character and make him this secondary antagonist, but he's getting intel while he's on the plane, and it just feels so inauthentic. How would he be able to get all this intel? And then he's getting an exclusive over the phone, and they're buying it. I just don't see it becoming a major news item in the course of like three and a half hours or however long they're floating up there. It's, it just seems like a shitty way to bring back a character from the first movie, and it doesn't feel very earned. Yeah, and it's a character that like I did not remember from the first movie, and they kept talking about him <laughs> like I was supposed to know him. And I'm like, I don't... Well, this kind of ties into what I think is the secret sauce of Die Hard and what makes it such a successful, great movie is not just the Bruce Willis, not just the action, but 
all the different side characters and how yeah. they kind of piece together. And I think that this movie and even the the sequel to this movie, the third one, which is actually pretty well respected, mm-hmm. I don't I think like they have the characters with the same level of style and fun that the first movie does. Which, yeah, the ensemble it, just... does not carry as well. Exactly. Well, and I think you can point some of that to the director. <laughs> Rennie Harlan is no John McTiernan. Let's talk about Rennie Harlan for a second. Yeah, my new nemesis. <laughs> Prior to this film, he's a Finnish filmmaker. Prior to this movie, he made Nightmare on Elm Street 4, uh, but he hadn't really done anything else. But after this, it leads to a very successful career making, like middling action movies. He did Cliffhanger with Sylvester Stallone, Deep Blue Sea, a movie I like, even though it's weirdly Christian, uh, Long Kiss Goodnight with uh, Gina Davis and Samuel Jackson. Great movie. A lot of people really like that movie. But he's definitely doesn't have uh, uh, Mac Tiernan's touch, particularly when it comes to like the supporting cast of characters. Just think about Humphrey in October that we watched earlier. Huge cast, lots of different characters. Many of them stand out, even though they only get one or two scenes. Totally. I want to talk about one other person behind the camera, which is Oliver Wood, who's the DP on this. Die Hard was shot by uh, Yann DeBont. We talked about that in our Hunt for Red October episode. Wood does a pretty good job aping his style here, but I wanted to mention him because he would go on to shoot the Bourne franchise, Mm. which basically redefines action cinematography. So this is like one of his early action movies where he's starting to develop his style. And he's going to go on to do some pretty incredible, innovative stuff. And this movie looks pretty. This movie looks pretty nice for a 1990 movie. It looks good. Yes. Yeah, yeah. The cinematography is like clean. It's good. Too many slow mo scenes, but <laughs> that's again. Rennie Harlan loves slow mo. <sighs> and I hate Rennie Harlan. So to wrap up the plot, he blows up a plane with all the bad guys on it. There's f- he yeah. throws a guy into an, a plane engine. So much happens. All of the yeah. bad guys get on one plane together. And he blows it up. Wait, the I, end. I think they blow up three planes because there's the one that he's in that they shoot up and then he ejector seats out of. You're right. That there one? are three plane explosions. That was my favorite action moment when they were shooting the plane and he ejected. I thought that was pretty funny. The only thing I don't get about that scene is why, why John, what John is doing. Why did he go in the plane after he's in the plane? Why doesn't he take the gun from uh, uh, General Esperanza, why does he go in the cockpit? Nothing that he does in that scene makes any sense. You know, Ben, I'm going to quote another kind of shitty action movie from 2002 called I Spy, where <laughs> Owen Wilson says, you know, you're a why guy. I'm a why not guy. Ben, you're a why guy. John McClane's a why not guy. <laughs> uh, yeah, great. Um, okay, let's quickly talk about the box office. Big budget on this, 62 to $70 million, which puts it in the same ballpark as Total Recall, which by some reports was the most expensive film made up to that point. So this was a real expensive movie. And you can tell, it looks great. Opening weekend, July 4th, opens to $22 million. Probably a little bit of a disappointing opening, but still perfectly solid. That's around where Hunt for October was. That's where around where TMNT was. You know, they were a little bit higher, but in that ballpark, it goes on to gross 117 domestic, 240 worldwide. So this is a big hit. Where do we think it wound up using that 117 number? We know it's higher than the other two by a significant amount. Ranking game. This is just for July 4th weekend for the whole year. Whole year, the final domestic gross was 117. July 4th weekend, $22 million. I'm going to put it at number 10. Number 10. Number 10. Six. 
Six from Davide. I'm going to go four, no, mm, 12. 12. 15? 15. And the winner is, it was eight. So Ooh. Nat and Davide split the points. Ooh. Half a point Ooh. each. <laughs> All right. I have a point and a half now? Yes. <laughs> yeah, you two are tied for the lead still. <laughs> still time uh, to come back, Andy. John, Andy, yeah, there's still plenty of time to come back. Then we're going to do double points <laughs> for Psycho 4. Because <laughs> oh the... Speaking of, Davide, tell us about the oddball, the odd one out, the movie that doesn't quite match with the others in this list. Well, Psycho 4. The made-for-TV movie. Exactly. Which I don't think had doesn't get ranked with the others at the end, unfortunately. But we'll find something else to give points out for. But I was really excited for Psycho 4. And before I watched it, I read about it and I thought the premise was really cool. It's it's modern day, you know, 1990. Uh, and Norman Bates is cooking himself dinner on his birthday. And he's listening to a radio show and the topic of the radio show's guest is matricide. And he calls in and he says, well, you know, I've got a history with matricide. And so he kind of develops his rapport with the radio show host and he, she starts getting all these things out of him. And he's doing it under a pseudonym. And he basically starts detailing what drove him to commit matricide. But he then goes into other murders that he's committed. And it basically becomes this exercise, this really gratuitous exercise in, like, the Oedipus complex. And this, this movie is very, very horny towards... It's, it's not just horny it's like uncomfortable softcore incest porn kind of i mean i wrote down three <laughs> scenes where there's one scene where his mother's having a nervous breakdown and she says norman come 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 for me and you know he's 15 or 16 years old and he's about to like get into bed with her and she says no take all your clothes off and he you're wet yeah, you're wet you have to strip so naked. he gets into bed and they start holding each other and it seems that he gets an erection and runs off and He's like, I'm not feeling well, I need to be alone. The next scene is kind of like that, but takes it to the next level. It's They call it the hottest day of the year. And they're, and she's like in a, in, a, in a silk nightgown and he's already in his underwear. And he's like, mother, I'm bringing you iced tea. And she says, Norman, you know, massage my legs. And they do these, one of the few things I really liked about this movie was the cinematography. They do these really intense, extreme close-ups of body parts, of, of food, of knives, of, of little details. And so he's massaging his mother and while he's massaging his mother and they're both like half naked, he spills some iced tea on her. And she said, oh, Norman, like you're, you know, whatever. And she starts tickling him and they start tussling on the floor and they're rolling around on the floor, you know, again, half naked. And he's on top of her and she pulls him close like they're about to kiss. And it's like this really romantic embrace. And then she feels his erection and she throws him off and drags him to her bedroom and starts saying, you're never going to do that again. Like, you're mommy's little girl, and I'm going to make you mommy's little girl. And this is where he gets this persona of taking on his mom. She dresses him up in a nightgown, smears lipstick on his face, and then and then literally puts him in the closet. Like, if you want to be really on the nose, puts him in the closet. And then hands him a bottle, uh, hands him a pitcher of water and says, you're going to squat like a girl and use this cup to pee into. And I quote, You'll learn that that thing you have is only good for one thing, making wee-wee. Okay. And at this point, I'm like, okay, so this isn't really what Hitchcock was thinking, I don't think. Um, I was kind of like... All right, I want to I back up a little bit, because I want to talk about some 
some some cast people here. The subtitle of Psycho 4, did you say it? It's a new beginning. It's the beginning. Or the beginning. Psycho 4, the beginning. And it has this weird diptych structure where we keep cutting back and forth from present day Norman to these flashbacks of how he became the killer Norman Bates. Right. So what that means is we've got a pretty interesting cast. Anthony Perkins returns as Norman Bates again. He would die in 1992. So this is this is just a little bit before his death, but... He found out he had HIV on this set. Did he? Did yeah, he? I, that was a fact that I learned about this, was that he was on the set filming this when he learned that he was he had HIV, which is a sad trivia fact about this. Yeah, that's really sad. Way to bring us all down. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome uh, to the movie. But playing young Norman, we have uh, Henry Thomas. Elliot from E.T. I thought he was pretty good in this movie. He was. He was one of the, the, the I think he and, and Olivia Hussey. Olivia Hussey. Hussey. I thought the, the two of them were, were really good. Olivia Hussey is also definitely a recognizable name. She plays Norma Bates in the movie. Did you guys ever see the Franco Zeffirelli, Romeo and Juliet? Like the classic one from the 60s? She plays Juliet in that. Uh, but she was also the lead in Black Christmas, which was the first slasher film, basically. Oh, cool. Comes out before Halloween and kicks off that genre and she's still working as a voice artist for all the star wars video games playing leia that's cool yeah so she does she doesn't do motion pictures but just does the voice you know who else i liked in this movie and and you might disagree because it's a pretty colorful performance i like cch pounder who plays the radio host i liked her she was soothing i mean she's a like classic character actress she has a bunch of supporting roles on tv particularly er and the shield and uh she's she's fiery i like her a lot yeah i mean she kind of she kind of stood out from the rest of the of the radio crew because everyone's, you know, she's kind of saying that they need to drag out more information from him. And they're like, no, we just have to call the cops. I'm like, well, you know, that might not work. And she was, you know, she's kind of the a hero in some sense, perhaps prevents the murder at the end. Right. Because that's the other thing is, is when he calls in, Norman says, I have killed before and I'm going to kill again. So the present day self is her trying to talk him out of killing and figuring out who he's going to kill. Right. Uh, what does that reveal turn out to be? Well, I should add also, this takes place after he's been released from a mental asylum. And at the mental asylum, he met, I think she was a doctor or one of the nurses there. And she believes that Norman has been rehabilitated and decides to marry him. And it, the whole this whole movie takes place on one night. It's Norman's birthday. And he's on the phone with the radio host calling in, you know, recounting these things the whole night. And his wife is on her way home. And has to pick up a cake for Norman. And finally, when she comes home, he's like, listen, I want actually, I want to meet at, at my mother's house. And she said, Norman, like, I thought we put that behind us. He says, no, we got to take care of something. So they meet at the Bates Motel and he is about to kill his wife. And this is what the whole, all the action in the movie leads up to. Why is he trying to kill her? Why does he try to kill her? Oh, well, that's another. Yeah, they kind of reveal that at the end is that he didn't want to have a child. He thinks his whole psychosis is is genetic, <laughs> and she gets off birth control and gets impregnated with Norman Bates's child. So he has to kill her to prevent spreading his madness to a new generation. Right. So he wants to kill her and the baby, like a time traveling Dexter. <laughs> so in a way, he's a good guy. Yeah, I mean, he's a hero, right? It's Norman Bates. And in yeah. the end, he. He is convinced against it. And this is, I think, the only time Norman Bates is ever reformed. It's it's like the happy ending. It fades to black and has a baby crying at the end. It's kind of, it's like the ending was so cringy and cheesy. Like They burn down Mother's house and Norman finally gets his happy ending. And right before, and there's that second between the last shot and the credits and you just hear a baby wailing for like 20 seconds. 
And you, as you hear it wailing, you're like, okay, I get that. But they keep it going. So this movie was in like a vacuum without the two other sequels, right? Yes, Correct. It, they don't exist. And actually, it was written by Joe Stefano, who wrote the original Psycho script. He wrote the first movie. And he had mentioned that he did not even watch the second or third. So this actually worked well as a sequel for not having seen the other two because it just existed on its own. It felt like it was made by people that really respected and loved the original Psycho. I mean, the executive producer was Hitchcock's first AD, Hilton Green. Um, it used a lot of the original sets. I mean, Anthony Perkins is in, in this one. I mean, he's been in all the Psycho uh, sequels. But there, it while it fell short, it did seem like there was some love and, and uh, attention paid to the original one. I agree with that. I, and I think that some of the stuff between young Norman and his mom is pretty effective, like effectively disturbing. Yeah. I, I just thought that it was so gratuitous how incestuous it got and how weird. I don't know if this was like a made for TV thing, but there was another line where um, the mother and her boyfriend are having sex. Chet. Chet Rudolph, who I actually thought was a good actor. I thought he was kind of funny. They are having sex and Norman is peeping. He's peeping at his mother having sex with her boyfriend. And after they finish, his mother says, it's still hot outside. He said, go downstairs and see what's taking that boy so long. I'm thirsty. I can hardly swallow. And the boyfriend smirks and says, well, we can't have that now, can we? Right after they finished having sex. <laughs> Wait, Davide, we're, we're not just reading 4chan threads on this podcast. We're, we're discussing movies. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there was a lot of groaning as I was watching this. Um, and then, and then I will say my last quote from this movie was that Chet trying to build a rapport with young Norman wants to teach him how to be a man and takes him out to to, like to go boxing. And, you know, Norman is kind of shy and doesn't want to hit him back. And Chet says, you're not a girl, are you? You know, your mother swore to me you were as a boy. You know, she said you wasn't too badly hung either. Okay. And I mean, it's like on one hand, you're paying homage to to psycho and hitchcock's vision and all this stuff and it really does some of that nicely with the details but then it just goes so above and beyond of being ridiculous and gratuitous and so weirdly incestuous that you're just kind of like who is the audience for this where did this air originally well that's gonna be our points question don't look it up davide unless you already know oh i don't know where it originally aired good i had i had an interesting fact about this movie of all the psycho movies this one has the fewest knife murders which is the the, oh, the girlfriend? The, the the girl that wants to sleep yeah. with, with uh, young Norman. There's like a couple other people that get murdered, including an older woman um, that he makes out with and, and this younger mm-hmm. girl. That that stuff just feels like it's there for the body count. It doesn't illuminate yeah. Norman's character at all. It's it, not particularly interesting or scary. Well, it, it shows... I, I can't tell if it's like he's misogynistic because of his mother or his mother just scarred him so all women just are evil to him now like he has to punish anyone who is sexually attracted to him well no he kills that he got the boyfriend there's no sexual connection there well but he hates the boyfriend yeah well that's the oedipus thing coming to play there he kills the the father the boyfriend some of column a some of column b can i say i find it unbelievable that norman bates has spawned this much content four <laughs> movies and a five season tv show and for like this one guy a canceled tv show also called bates motel that never got picked up i know it was revolutionary when it came out what was it like 1960 60 years ago <laughs> and we're still dealing with this guy you know i forgot that there was the bates motel tv show that is basically just a better version of this movie yeah i mean i've never watched it but it's the same idea it's norman and his mom and then the last season is Psycho. So, has anyone watched it? If you that? really like this one Norman Bates guy, I don't think any of us have watched it, but 
This one guy. It's amazing. I will s- more shit than John McClane. I will say that that as far as, as as terrible and ridiculous I thought it was, I did think that it was nicely shot. I thought a lot of the, the detail things that I was mentioning in the beginning were really nice. Um, and I also just thought the premise, like reading what it was about, like Norman Bates calls in under a pseudonym to like discuss his murders. I thought that was kind of what's a, a pseudonym? Ed. Uh, Ed. He never gave a, a last reference name. to Ed Gein uh, because Ed Gein was a major inspiration for the original character mm-hmm, and for mm-hmm. every serial killer in any movie ever basically <laughs> yeah but it, it it was a nice idea uh but it definitely felt yeah. corny it's it's it it feels small and a little bit cheesy but it's not it's not completely devoid of merit it, it feels like oh a made for tv sequel to psycho this must be complete trash and it's not it's tackling some pretty interesting stuff and it's doing pretty unsparingly it's got some pretty good performances and it's reasonably well shot and directed the director was a guy named Mick Garris, who's sort of a peripheral figure in the horror world. He directed Critters 2 and The Fly 2, or and Sleepwalkers. Sleepwalkers is his big one, Nightmare Cinema. He wrote Hocus Pocus and The Fly 2. Uh, he was a big part of Masters of Horror, which is a pretty cool anthology TV series where a bunch of prominent horror directors made, made for TV horror films. Hmm. He's got a podcast where he brings on horror directors. He's kind of an interesting guy. The big fan of the genre. Yo, let's get him as a guest. Yeah, we could. Let's get him on. Uh, okay, so you guys want to make your guesses on for like what network this movie aired on? All right, I'm gonna guess Skinamax after 10:30. Nat, Nat's going premium cable. Who else thinks premium cable? <laughs> Thank you for giving me a little bit of leeway this, on that joke. This feels like a Lifetime movie, what? but more murdery, like late night Lifetime. All right, we got Lifetime from John. Ugh. John took mine. There's boobs, though. There's boobs. So it can't be on Lifetime normal TV. have boobs, I think. Was it stars? Star- we got some more premium cam from Davide. He's a stars. Andy, uh-huh. the correct answer is still out there. Uh, TLC. It's not uh, HBO. Showtime. Nick got it right, but I'm not giving him the points because he already made a guess. It was Showtime. Uh... Uh, the first the first major HBO competitor, right, that like tried to move into that space. Certainly, you could see why they thought this might have been a good thing to invest in. It aired November 10th, 1990. A little late for Halloween. There you go. Okay, should we talk about our last movie? It's getting late. Rocky Five. Let's do Rocky Five. Who here has watched any of the Rocky films? Nobody? Just number one. Just number one. Just number one. That's a whole bag of worms. I have never wanted to get into. I, I said this when I introduced the movie. Rocky Five holds the 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 shameful honorific of being the lowest grossing and worst reviewed Rocky film. So I went into this pretty nervous because I kind of like Rocky movies. They span a wide gamut of types of movies. They aren't particularly coherent or consistent as a series, but each of them has their own individual merits that I, I enjoy. But I'd never seen this one before. So I, I went into it with a significant amount of trepidation. In order to understand why people hated this movie, you got to talk about like where the franchise is at when this movie comes out. 1976, struggling actor Sylvester Stallone writes himself a film role that he would know he'd never get cast for if he didn't do some of the work. He produces the film, he hires a talented young director, and they make Rocky. And it is the highest grossing film of 1976. It is 
a smash hit. It wins Best Picture, Best Director at the Oscars. Stallone gets nominated for Best Actor, Best Screenplay. Basically the dream. The dream of all film school students. <laughs> it was Rocky in real life. An underdog story, a Cinderella tale, a miracle. That movie is very much of its time. It is layered with the cynicism of the 70s. It doesn't end with the hero winning. It ends with him just making it to the final bell. Apollo Creed wins the final match. But love wins. But love wins. It's about setting your own definitions of victory uh, and about scratching out some meaning in a very difficult life. And it's a really powerful film for those reasons. But given its both critical acclaim and commercial success, the character couldn't be let lie, and you can't keep doing that over and over. That's not sustainable. Eventually, he does have to win if he's going to be our hero in a long-running franchise. So pretty much as soon as we get to Rocky II, all of the instinct towards realism is gone. Instead of facing realistic opponents and personal travails, Rocky is fighting cartoon characters. In Rocky II, it's Hulk Hogan, basically playing Hulk Hogan. In Rocky III, it's Mr. T, basically playing Mr. T. And in Rocky IV, the pinnacle of the franchise, he is fighting a Soviet Superman, played by Dolph Lundgren. Rocky Four is an important note because it's the highest grossing Rocky film. Even without being adjusted for inflation, it grossed more than the Creed films. Huge smash hit. And it is the definitive Rocky, I think, in the minds of most people who think of the franchise as a whole. It has almost nothing to do with the first movie. It is a movie about a man who wins the Cold War by beating up a steroid-pumped Dolph Lundgren, punching him in the face. <laughs> By strapping on a pair of American flag boxer shorts and getting in the ring with the man that murdered his friend and trainer, Apollo Creed. That movie is ridiculous. He has a mansion with a robot. Like, it's a stupid fucking movie. But it's also, it's, it's reveling in the attitudes of the era. of hmm. uh, The patriotism and the, the commercialism and the consumerism of the 80s in the Reagan era. When it comes time to make a Rocky Five. It's obvious they can't top that. And it's also obvious that the national attitude is changing, that there probably isn't a market for Rocky to beat up, I don't know, you know, someone in someone in Iran or or uh, Nicaragua or Grenada. Yeah, like what, what world leader is he going against? We don't have the USSR anymore for him to fight against. So Sylvester Stallone, who had written and directed the three sequels, goes back to the drawing board and says, I'm going to bring back the director from the first film, John Alvinson, and I'm going to try and take Rocky back to his roots. Make it more about overcoming personal struggle. Make it a smaller scale story that isn't about winning on international stages. It's really hard to rewind a character. It's really hard to come off of the bombast of Rocky IV and make a small movie. It's basically like if, if the Fast and the Furious gang started stealing CD players again. Right, and that is probably what people reacted to. This was not the Rocky movie they were expecting. The movie begins right where Rocky IV left off. In fact, we had a recap of the fight against Ivan Drago at the end of Rocky IV, particularly focusing on the beating that Rocky takes. But then the movie immediately changes tones because the next scene is Rocky in the showers and his body is just breaking down. Hmm. And Stallone is really quite good in this scene. It's really scary to see him just like freaking out. He's like, there's something wrong with me. I don't know what it is. I can't stop my hand from shaking. I'm really, really scared. And it is a weird come down from 
the emotional high of the end of Rocky Four. Rocky returns home. This entire movie basically takes place like starting the day after Rocky Four, which is going to be important in a second. He returns home and he meets his greatest nemesis yet. Is it another boxer played by a famous wrestler or muscular dude? No, it is a thinly veiled parody of Don King, the famous boxing promoter. <laughs> Rocky's greatest foe is a black man in glasses. Uh, this is Richard Grant playing George Washington Duke. And his character feels very, very gross from the first second he is on screen. He wants to get Rocky to fight. Rocky is the world's greatest boxer. He knows that he can sell a huge match by pitting Rocky against his champion, Union Kane. Rocky's villains always have the best names. Clubber Lang, yeah, totally. Apollo Creed, Union Kane. But Rocky says no. And he goes on in the next scene where he meets his actual greatest nemesis, Crooked Accountants. Turns out, while he was in Russia, his brother-in-law, Polly, convinced him to sign a power of attorney that allowed his accountant to steal all his money and run away. So Rocky has lost everything. Shit. He's going to lose his mansion. He's going to have to move back to the, the, the poor neighborhood in Philadelphia where the first movie takes place. But it turns out that's not even his greatest nemesis. His actual greatest nemesis is brain damage. And we cut to the next scene where the doctors tell him, you can't ever fight again. If you do, you'll die. So the movie gets really heavy really fast. I don't think it's the worst idea and it actually really sets the template for the next few films, the way Rocky is portrayed in Rocky Balboa and in Creed as this kind of broken down dude. So all that is here and this movie provides a necessary stepping stone to that, but it's so contrived, particularly the losing mm. all the money is so contrived. Yeah. Sounds like it. During these scenes, we meet Rocky's son who was played by Sage Stallone. Sylvester Stallone's actual son. And I mentioned that it's important that this movie takes place effectively the day after Rocky four, because in Rocky four, Rocky jr. Was nine years old. And in Rocky five, Rocky jr. Is 15. <laughs> hey, so growth spurts are real, man. Continuity's not that important. Uh, they return to Philly, him and Talia Shire returning as Adrian and Polly. And they all move into the old house where he used to live. And it's mostly about him sort of, coming back to that life and about his relationship with his family and about the strain they're facing. He has inherited Mick's gym. Mick was played in the first movie by Burgess Meredith. That was his like trainer, his manager guy um, who gets a few scenes in this movie in flashbacks and sort of dream sequences. He's great in this. He was also in state of grace where he was kind of a non-entity, but he's really fun in this. I like, I like Burgess Meredith a lot. Wait, so have you gotten like past the half hour mark? What is this movie? Just all this bad well, shit happens to We're him? getting there. We're, I mean, a lot of it is just sort of slice of life drama. It's just like his life. The main plot thread is Rocky has back pain. He's with, yeah, exactly. He's got brain damage. Rocky, Rocky's got brain damage. No, Rocky can't find the right eggs at the grocery store. He's inherited mixed gym. He's trained in new boxers. He takes on a young kid named Tommy gun. Wait, a kid, like a little kid. Uh, no big, big muscular dude played by an actual boxer. Okay. I was going to say, if there's a little kid in this movie, then I'm, I'm walking out. <laughs> there is Sage Stallone is like the little teenage kid. Uh, but Tommy Gunn is, is his protege and Rocky starts training him and Gunn is winning and we get our first montage where we see Gunn winning and Duke conniving how to try and get at Rocky and Rocky growing apart from his son because the main dramatic tension of the movie is the relationship with his actual son that montage ends with Gunn basically being on top but he still hasn't made it he can't get a, a um a shot at the title belt which is what he really wants and rocky keeps telling him no you gotta wait you gotta do it the right way but gun's impatient 
and George Washington Duke sees his chance. He buys gun with a fancy apartment and a nice car and a hot supermodel and basically gets gun to leave Rocky and join his squad instead. And this is the really kind of interesting narrative twist of this film. Turns out Union Kane is not the villain of the movie. It's mostly Duke, but the person Rocky ultimately has to fight is the one he trained. Tommy Gunn becomes his opponent in the final fight. Can I, can I just say, it's not a knock on you, Ben, but the way you're describing this movie, it sounds like when a nine-year-old comes up with a movie. <laughs> like, just like, and then this happens, and then he loses all his money, and then he has brain damage. <laughs> the 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 rises and falls of the emotional roller coaster that is this movie are massive. It's scaling and driving down Mount Everest. And then RoboCop shows up. We're actually really close to the end of the movie, which is crazy because it feels like we've just reached the midpoint. Gun leaving Rocky happens at a Christmas scene. And uh, it's a scene where Rocky also has to face the fact that he has um, been ignoring his own son. The son has made some friends at school, but is starting to act out. The scene is exactly what you imagine. Pretty trite and cliche. And the whole time I'm sitting there waiting for it to be over until the, the scene reveals its grand twist. Now, this is an audio medium, so I can't really do this justice. <laughs> but the entire time, Rocky Jr. has been watching TV and Rocky's on the stairs and we're filming them from one side. And then the camera swings around and we see that Rocky Jr. has gotten himself an earring. <laughs> and this earring is the most ridiculous earring I've ever seen in a movie. It's like a chain with then like a stick on it that hangs down probably three inches from this young teenager's ear. And that's how we know that his kid has fallen off the tracks, has gone, gone over to the dark Wait, side. What? He's got this ridiculous <laughs> earring. That's the end of the movie? No, that's not the end of the movie. That's the end of the scene. That's the twist of the scene. It was what made the scene go from boring to quite interesting to me. Oh, uh, okay. But, but literally, in a few scenes, Gunn winds up fighting for Duke. Instead, Rocky lets him go. He reconciles with his own son. And it seems like he's just ready to leave the past behind him. Gunn gets his shot at the title, fighting for Duke. He wins, but the crowd hates him because he betrayed Rocky. And they all love Rocky. And so Gunn freaks out, and Duke tries to egg him into challenging Rocky to a fight, thinking that he can finally get under Rocky's skin, only it backfires. And instead of getting a big title fight that, that Duke can promote, it turns into a street fight outside Ernie's bar from the first movie. Rocky mm. has to fight Tommy after Tommy knocks out Polly with a few punches. And uh, yeah, so then we get our final climactic fight of the, of the movie where Rocky and, and, and Tommy fight in the street. And again, I actually thought this was a pretty reasonable plot machination because we had to have a fight, but Rocky couldn't give in to Duke. He couldn't fight Gunn on Duke's terms. So this was actually a pretty solid narrative compromise so that we could get our cathartic conflict, but on Rocky's terms instead of Duke's. Uh, yeah, they have a fist fight and Rocky wins. And everyone cheers his name. The end. Who is like the <laughs> ideal Rocky fan? They just love Sylvester Stallone? I mean, it's somebody who likes underdog sports stories. But the thing is, there have been eight Rocky films. Three Rocky movies are about him fighting an evil cartoon man. Five of them are about emotionally troubled people dealing with their own difficult lives and expressing that in boxing. So this movie is actually much more a piece with the large majority of the Rocky films. Rocky 1, mm -hmm. Rocky 5, Rocky Balboa, and the two Creed movies that okay. have 
big fights and spectacle, but are less about the mechanics of the victory as much as they are about like personal drama. But this movie was a f- huge fail, right? It was a huge fail. But my review of it is it's not that bad. It's pretty boring okay. at parts. The plot is occasionally a little bit contrived, but it also has some clever twists. Stallone is pretty good in it. And it sets the stage for the movies that would come that are all pretty good. I like Rocky Balboa. Mm-hmm. I love Creed 1. Creed 2 was pretty good. Okay. A few other things I want to mention about the end of the movie, which is the, by far the biggest letdown. First of all, the street fight was choreographed by a pro wrestler, not by a boxer, professional fighter, and it shows. There's a lot of like suplexes and body slams, and it looks super fake. <laughs> Second, the end credits have a montage, uh, or rather like a slideshow, of famous scenes from all the Rocky movies, because this was supposed to be the last Rocky movie. And it plays over a song called The Measure of a Man, which is one of the worst songs I have ever heard. <laughs> Listeners, I will put a clip of it at the end of the show. It is atrocious. The hit, that song's actually kind of fun, even though it's badly placed. This song made me roll my eyes so hard, I felt like I pulled something. I can't wait to listen to this. It won the Razzie for worst song, and I believe that for once the Razzie's got it right. Oh, man. Uh, It also includes pictures. This slideshow includes pictures from the movie we just watched, which feels a little bit self-congratulatory. It's like, I literally just saw the scene. We don't need to recap it right now. This this reeks of, like, the whole Fast and the Furious and Avengers thing of, like, putting, like, tributes to your own movies at the end of your franchise movie. At this point, Rocky had been around for a decade and a half, and this was supposed to be the farewell. In fact, in the original version of the screenplay... Rocky dies after the street fight. He wins, but he suffers so much brain damage that he dies on the way to the hospital. Which, again, is sort of more where the tone of this movie was, but ultimately, Stallone couldn't follow through with that. He changed his mind, and we get this kind of sappier ending. Yeah. If we learned anything from Misery, never kill off your beloved character. And yeah, that's that's Rocky V. Uh, I would say that it's not as bad as people would lead you to believe. Time Magazine called it one of the 100 worst ideas of the 20th century, and it is definitely not that. Yeah, definitely can come up with way more than 100 worse ideas than a movie. It's not even close to the worst sequel that we watched today. In fact, having watched all these movies, <laughs> it might be my favorite or second favorite after Predator 2. Movie costs $42 million, Pretty expensive considering it doesn't look crazy expensive. It's got the look of Rocky 1, which is almost like a cheap documentary. It opened to $14 million the weekend of November 16th. It goes on to gross 41 million domestic, 120 worldwide. All right. Mm. Lowest grossing Rocky film um, and a major, I mean, stalls the franchise for a decade. Yeah. It's weird that there were no 90s. What do you guys think for the ranking game? Hmm. 15. 15. Before I say my number, I just want to say that no matter what happens, love wins. Um, <laughs> okay. I say 34. 33. Ooh. <laughs> The Apollo Creed. Uh, 26. Spoiler alert, I'm going to make this one worth two points. Huh. Oh, my God. And the answer is 31. John oh. is the winner. Woo. Adrian. Adrian. <laughs> so, <laughs> I love you. So if I'm remembering the point tallies correctly, that means John gets two points. Nat and Davide have a point and a half. Um, Andy is, is bringing up a respectable rear with zero points. But uh, hey, that's where I'm at, too. I would like to thank the Academy. Let's talk really quick. We got some wrap-up stuff we got to do. One of the 
things that we like to do on the podcast is try and tie all these movies together to come up with an idea of what it meant to be a movie in 1990, what themes were prevalent, what narrative tropes, what types of characters, anything stick out to you guys from the discussion of the movie, things that we talked like drugs, drugs are a big part of a lot of these movies. Yeah. Drugs were everywhere. Did anyone else have commie themes? I, we had some light commie themes in Die Hard 2 that I didn't get to touch on. Just a few casual pinkos thrown out. And I was like, isn't this late for making fun of communism? RoboCop was a pretty capitalist. Like, it, there's not even such a thing as a communist in RoboCop. It's just like the corporations have fully taken over. So in that sense, yes. Mm -hmm. It's sort of interesting that some of these movies sort of exist in the void post-Cold War that we've talked about. Rocky Five definitely feels that way, considering where Rocky Four was at. And even Die Hard One is about an East German, a communist, and and yeah. Die Hard Two, mm -hmm. it's an American. Well, and this one was making a lot of it's the '90s now jokes, so with like the fax machine and stuff. Yeah, it, it yeah, those all aged one. really well. You see that a lot in '90s movies. We're like, it's the '90s, but yeah, the drugs and the crime. Obviously, it's done in such a lazy way in a lot of these movies. Like, there's drugs, there's crime, there's drugs and crime. It's it's sort of like the back burner version of what we've been talking about for like the actual good movies. Uh, one thing I, I was thinking about was um, famous people casting their kids in movies. We talked about Jenny oh, Lumet God. in Q&A. We're going to talk about Sophia Coppola in Godfather 3. I got to say, Sage Stallone, not terrible. Of all the, mm. the all the kids of famous people in their own movies, he might be the best this year. I just wanted to say that I, I my brain kind of hurts after watching all of these movies in a row i've never watched like four sequels in a row it's insane it's an insane thing to do it's like only eating like fast food for three days um because there's just no substance we're doing the super size me treatment. yeah exactly I, I feel a little lightheaded we should go watch some fellini after this i feel like this is and I'm speaking completely out of my ass here, but like maybe 1990 is the start of sequel melees. Hmm. I mean, I think that it's always been a problem. Even in like the fifties, they would make shitty sequels to really successful movies that time has kind of forgotten. Maybe on a big scale. Yeah, maybe though, it's the scale, the way the industry is changing where the big movies are getting bigger and the small movies are getting smaller and fewer in between. That's yeah. something like Die Hard 2 is so much more depressing than, you know, whatever sequel would have happened 20 years before. Yeah. Cause it's like a big worldwide event and not just like some B movie. So the whole world can be disappointed in unison. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it is kind of funny that there were so many sequels to these pretty well-known eighties franchises all in 1990. Like I, I didn't look at like 91 or 89, but it does seem like, we didn't even talk about all of the ones. I know. We, There's more to come. We were going to potentially cover Young Guns 2. We were going to potentially cover... Which I watched, by the way. It wasn't that bad. Another 48 Hours. Yeah, there was uh, Another bunch. big one. That was actually one of the highest grossing of all of them. It's funny that we missed it. Oh, let's do it. I'll get my point back. <laughs> we, we've got, we've got a, a whole episode of horror sequels coming up, too. Yeah, so it's a lot of goddamn sequels. But it's just like junk food. It, all of them felt like junk. It's kind of interesting because I feel like we're in, in some ways, a similar era now where, you know, for the past couple of years, a lot of times the passing conversation with casual moviegoers is, for the love of God, somebody have an idea. Somebody, like, do something new <laughs> instead of now we're in the era of, like, live action Disney and, 
you know, still in reboot mania. It almost feels like an earlier version of one of those eras. But I guess that could also just be that we've only talked about sequels. It feels like we've actually gone a step further back where they're not even like, let's make a semi-original sequel to a film. They're like, let's just make the same movie, but live action now. It's true. RoboCop 2 and Die Hard 2 are such carbon copies of the movies that came before them that they are particularly exhausting to watch. Yeah. All right. Is there anything else we need to talk about? Let's just do our final plugs here. Everyone, thank you for listening to this very special episode of Back to the Movies. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on whatever platform you listen to us on. And follow us on social media at BTTMPod on Instagram and Twitter. This is a very special opportunity because we can thank the man in person. Thanks to Andy Gagnon for our theme song. Thank you for coming. Andy, I've been meaning to ask you for a while now. If listeners want to hear more of your work, where can they go? Uh, you can check out a few of the projects that I work with. Uh, the Renegade Groove is a kind of funky dance outfit. Uh, Lovecraft is a jazz group that I work with. Uh, it's all on Spotify, Apple Music, all the usual music awesome. spots. Thanks again. We love the theme song so much. It's my favorite part of the show. <laughs> All right, now you want to take us out? Yeah, so for Back to the Movies, this has been John, Davide, Andy, and Nat. And I'm Ben, and we'll see you next week when we go Back to the Movies. Woo! Back to the Movies Part 2. <laughs> Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> Wait till we do the sequel to the sequel spectacular. Oh, man. Perfect. <laughs> These battered hands are all you own. This broken heart this turn to stone Go hang your glory on the wall There comes a time when castles fall And all that's left is shifting in the sand You're out of time, you're out of place Look at your face, that's the measure of a man This coat that fits you like a glove These dirty streets you learn to love So welcome back, my long-lost friend You've been to hell and back again And God alone knows how you cross that span Back on the beach to the start, trust in your heart, that's the middle of a man. It's the fire in the eyes, the lines on the hand, it's the things you understand, purple the ties from which you once ran, that's the middle of a man. You come full circle, now you're home Without the gold, without the chrome And this is where you've always been You had to lose so you could win And rise above your troubles while you can
with you I'm crying. 